0: 2. If you find that, you can stand. I'm going to be preaching from chapter 3, but I'm going to read from chapter 2. Chapter 2, Nehemiah, beginning verse 17. Then I said to them, you see the bad situation we are in, that Jerusalem is desolate and its gates burned by fire. Come, let us rebuild the wall of Jerusalem that we may no longer be a reproach. And I told them how the hand of my God had been favorable to me, and also about the king's words which he had spoken to me. Then they said, Let us arise and build. So they put their hands to the good work. And when Sanballat, the Hornite, and Tobiah, the Ammonite official, and Gisum, the Arab, heard it, they mocked us and despised us and said, What is this thing that you are doing? Are you rebelling against the king? So I answered them and said to them, The God of heaven will give us success. Therefore, we, his servants, will arise and build. But you have no portion, right, or memorial in Jerusalem. And I'll pray. God, again, thank you for your word and for this immense privilege that we have to gather together in the name of Jesus. We thank you for all that has been accomplished on our behalf by Jesus, that the work is finished, that our sin has been paid for and that we will never have to suffer the consequences of what we deserve because of what Christ has done for us. We thank you that we do, God, um, partake of you through the nature that you have given us, which has made us partakers of, of your very life. And we um, now, God, just gather together and want to hear of you from you and to be fed by you and that your ministry in us would be accomplished. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> well, I appreciate John filling in for me last week. Patsy and I were in Florida. Uh, I was preaching at a church there, and then we took a couple days just to relax, which was very nice and glad for the opportunity. We're in Nehemiah, and we're actually in chapter 3. And, um, you know, as I, as I was preparing, I really have spent a lot of time this past week looking at chapter 4 through 7 and kind of in my mind, just kind of skipping over chapter 3 a little bit, I know better than to do that because every word of Scripture is inspired by God. It's all here for a reason. But it's just a lot of hard names to pronounce. And if I'd done the Scripture reading this morning trying to read from chapter 3, you would have laughed. And so it's just a difficult chapter to read because it's just one name after another. Um, something like I went through in Canada, and it's just, it's dozens of names um, very difficult, at least from my Texas mouth. And, um, and so I thought, well, what, you know, it's, I know it's here for a reason, but let's just go to chapter four. But the, I, just the more I looked at chapter three, the I just felt like I can't skip it. Um, it's here, and God wants us to, to learn from it. It's profitable. And if you read through chapter three, one of the things, two things are happening. One is Nehemiah is listing all these different people that worked on building the wall. That's obvious. And then the second thing is, is that he highlights all the different gates of the city. Not as obvious, but it's there. It starts with the very first verse. We'll look at chapter 3, verse 1. Then Eliashib, the high priest, arose with his brothers, the priest, and they built the sheep gate. So it starts with the sheep gate, and there's ten gates to Jerusalem. Now, the area of Jerusalem is in question as far as how how much acreage um, these these 10 gates and the wall covered. At the the smallest, it was something like 90 acres, and at the biggest, it was 220 acres. So either way, it's a pretty um, significant piece of real estate for a bunch of people to get together and build a wall, and we're going to find out they're going to build it in only 52 days. So starting with the sheep gate, then the thing, I, as, as I read through this, one every commentary says the, the gates are described in a counterclockwise thing. Well, what's the big? They didn't have watches, so they didn't know what counterclockwise was, right? And I, but, but I thought, is that the normal way? And so that kind of got me thinking, is that the normal way to describe something, even in their time when they didn't have watches and clocks, to describe something counterclockwise rather than clockwise? And I don't think it was. But I didn't know for sure. But I did know, if you look back at the book of Numbers, chapter 2, when the camp of Israel is being described, it's being described in a clockwise motion. Maybe that doesn't mean anything, but that tells me that that's the normal way they describe things, was clockwise. This is counterclockwise with these gates. Maybe there's something to it. But I don't want to over-spiritualize the text. Bad to do that, okay? And then I, as I was reading, pulled out my trusty, Um, J. Vernon McGee commentaries, and J. Vernon McGee, who is not prone to spiritualizing the text, just says it for what it is. He's saying that there is a spiritual lesson going on with these gates and why they are listed in the order that they are and going counterclockwise as they are. And he's not alone. An older um, Bible scholar, Ironside, H.A. Ironside, does the same thing and says there's a message here to why these gates are laid out as they are. So, no, we should not approach Scripture trying to look for a spiritual lesson in everything. You don't want to over-spiritualize the text. But yes, God is into symbols, and there are many places in Scripture where we see God using just normal things in a symbolic way. Many places in Scripture, the rock in the wilderness that Moses struck, that was a picture of Christ. And you have the leprosy is a picture of sin. The healing of leprosy is a picture of salvation. All the the construction of the tabernacle, the way it was laid out and the materials that were being used, many authors have have written about how much symbolism was involved in all of those things. So we know that God is into symbols. We just don't want to put words into God's mouth, and we have to be very careful about interpreting things as symbolic when the interpretation is not given to us in Scripture. So I I am going to venture into this tentatively, um, not dogmatically, but I am intrigued by these things. So here's the layout. Ten gates. Sheep gate, fish gate, old gate, valley gate, dung gate, that's a fun one, fountain gate, water gate, horse gate, east gate, inspection gate, and then it comes back around and finishes with another mention of the sheep gate. Interesting. Now, I don't have a PowerPoint because all I can do... This is my PowerPoint, okay? I'm pointing powerfully. That's about as good as it gets for a PowerPoint. <laughs> it? Um, but if I had something up on the screen, you would see the picture of Jerusalem, and the first gate, the sheep gate, is right up in the northeastern corner of the city, okay? And it is the sheep gate, just like it sounds, where the sheep were brought into the Jerusalem, for the Passover, and for all the different sacrifices that were taking place. They brought in the sacrificial animals through the sheep gate. It happens, just so happens, obviously not just so happens, that Jesus, we believe, most of the time that he entered Jerusalem, entered through the sheep gate. There are ten gates that Jesus could have come through almost every time he entered through the sheep gate. He didn't do that when he entered Jerusalem at the end of his ministry for the triumphal entry. On that occasion, he entered through the eastern gate, which faced toward the Mount of Olives and was lined up with the temple. And every other occasion, it appears that Jesus used the sheep gate. Well, Jesus is the Lamb of God, and he is the one who offers himself to Israel as the sacrifice for our sins. So maybe something's going on there. So it just seems a little suspicious that, that would be his preferred gate to enter through, the same gate where the sheep, the sacrificial animals were brought um, whenever sacrifices were being made. Still in the northern um, part of the city, and right in line with the sheep gate, but going over to the west, is the um, fish gate. And J. Vernon McGee points out that after you have trusted Christ to remove your sin and and to grant you eternal life, at that moment you are made, what? A fisher of men. Your identity changes, and you you are no longer what you were. Life is no longer about you. It's now about others. And God saves you through faith in Christ, the Lamb of God, and He makes you a fisher of men. And then we start down the western side of the city and we come to the old gate. Why the old gate? It's not a very good name, old gate. They're all old gates. This gate's not any older than any of the other gates. They're all old gates, right? But this one was always called the old gate. J. Vernon McGee would say it's because you need to realize that when you become a Christian, there is not any new truth for you. The truth that you heard when you received Christ is the only truth you will ever need to hear. God doesn't have new truth. He doesn't have uh, new revelations for you that exceed what God has already said. All that you receive when you receive Christ is all that you will ever need. The truth is the same. There is nothing more. We don't ever go beyond Scripture. We don't search for new truth. Certainly God makes things new to us. God makes things fresh to us. God opens our eyes to things, but it is always the eternal truth of God, and he doesn't add to it. And then you go way down that western wall until quite a distance, it's the longest distance between gates, and you come to the valley gate. And it's the valley, and there's valleys on every side. This is a hilltop. And so every side of the city had valleys around it. So why would this gate be called the valley gate? Because one of the things that we need to understand is that even though you have received Christ, you placed your trust in the one who is the Lamb of God to take away your sin, and now you've become a fisher of men, and you've been given the truth. It is an old truth. It is, it is an eternal truth. It's an unchanging truth. But life is hard. And there are a lot of valleys. In fact, again, if you look at this at the map, I'm pointing powerfully to my map here, that it's just, it's a long section where valley, valley, and, and you go, this is, you go, why? It's just this big section that just screams out, valley. Because a lot of life is about the valleys. I often, when I think about that, I, my mind goes to the Mount of Transfiguration. Only three guys got to go up there, and they weren't allowed to talk about what they saw. But the rest of the disciples had to stay in the valley. As Oswald Chambers calls it, the demon-possessed valley. And that's where most of us have to live. And God, in His wisdom, knows when to give us a mountaintop experience. But sometimes we look around and we go, man, that guy, he just lives on the mountaintop. And I don't think I've ever been to a mountaintop. When am I going to get a mountaintop experience? And life can feel very much like we're always in the valley. Well, it's the place of humility, it's the place of brokenness, and it's a place that every Christian has to walk in. It is much of the Christian life. The very next gate, and it's right down at the bottom, right at the very southern part of the city, is the Dung Gate. And this is where all the excrement was hauled out of the city. Not a nice place, the Dung Gate. But isn't that sometimes what we feel like? I mean, Paul said it himself. He says, we, we are treated like the scum of the earth. We have, there is nothing good in us apart from Christ. And we can feel like just dung. The valley gate down to the dung gate. And this is the place, um, J. Vernon McGee would say, the place of acknowledging our sin and making confession to God and saying, God, cleanse me. Because as a Christian who have been cleansed of all of our sin, we know that we continually have to come back to God through Jesus Christ for cleansing from our sin. And then immediately we start up the eastern side, and these two gates are the closest in proximity. The dung gate, and the very next one, the fountain gate. The gate of water, the gate of life. And so we come to this place oftentimes and go, there's nothing worthwhile in me. I know I'm saved, but I don't feel saved. And in acknowledging that, that place of brokenness and humility, of lowliness, of of confession, and then God immediately brings us to the fountain gate, and Vernon McGee would say that's the place of God's indwelling and of spirit filling. And we say, Jesus, I need your filling. Spirit of God, fill me, control me. Jesus says, all those that come to me will never thirst again. And he says, and out of your innermost being will flow rivers of living water. I come that you might have life and might have it abundantly. It seems the fountain gate symbolizes that. And then we go up a little further and there's the water gate. Fountain gate, water gate. It's not the watergate you might have heard of in the past. This is a different watergate, the first watergate. And this seems to speak of the cleansing of God's Word. We need the Spirit's indwelling, which we have when we receive Christ, but we need His filling as well. But we not only need the Spirit's filling, we need the Word of God to cleanse us. Jesus said in John 17, Father, sanctify them in truth, thy Word is truth. John 17, 17. Father, sanctify them in the truth, thy word is truth. It is, this, it is the word of God that cleanses us and sanctifies us. It is interesting that in chapter 8 of Nehemiah, no, it's chapter, yeah, chapter 8 of Nehemiah, Ezra is going to preach and expound God's word. And guess which gate he does that from? The water gate. Ten gates. He could have said, this is where I'm going to stand and preach. He chose the water gate because the water symbolizes the cleansing that God's word brings to our life. We all need to be under God's word. God's word cleanses us as we read God's word and approach him through what he has said in his word. Still continuing north along the eastern side, we come up to the horse gate. Well, horses are used for battle. Is about the only animal that I know of that that likes battle. Most animals would run away from the commotion of, a, of artillery going off and men running and clashing into each other and cannons going off. Horses like it. You can you know, It's amazing. You know, people that that have been involved in, in cavalry and horse in battle that involved horses. They say you you can. Horses will run into battle. The horse gate It's what kings rode. It's what warriors rode. And J. Vernon McGee would say it symbolizes the spiritual battle that we all must take up, that we take up the armor of Christ. We understand we're not wrestling against flesh and blood, but have, there's a spiritual power that we're wrestling against, and we are all in a spiritual battle. And then immediately north of the horse gate is the east gate. And this is the gate that is lined up perfectly with the temple and with the Mount of Olives. And the Bible indicates that when Jesus returns, he will step foot on the Mount of Olives and he will walk through the eastern gate and take his place in the temple. It is the eastern gate that when the watchmen stood on the, gate, on the city walls at night and the watchmen were on the whole perimeter of the city all around on those, on those walls, but the one that, they, that, that the, the privileged place to be was that watchman on the eastern side because he was the guy that got to announce the break of day. Day has come. Because then when you're a night watchman, the one thing you want to see is the sun cresting up over the horizon because now you know things are going to be safe. And so that guy, more than all the other watchmen, lived in anticipation, and we do as well, anticipating the return of Jesus Christ. We live in anticipation. We watch for Christ to come again. And He could come, I believe, at any time. And I know like most Christians, I'm praying, come quickly, Lord Jesus. We want Him to come, and we should live in watchfulness and anticipation of His soon return. And then the last gate, number 10. What happens when Jesus returns? We face the the Bema Seat of Christ. We don't face judgment per se because when a person places his faith in Christ, he passes out of judgment into life. But the Bema Seat is a place of reward. It is a place of inspection. And the last gate is the inspection gate. That's the place where we are taken to be with the Lord and we stand before Jesus at the Bema Seat, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, and each of us, We'll have our works judged, not we ourselves, but our works judged so that we might be recompensed or rewarded for how we live this life. And then Nehemiah brings it back to, again, one more mention of the sheep gate. It starts at the sheep gate, ends at the sheep gate, because everything begins and ends with Jesus. So that's a pretty interesting little study. I kind of like that. Now, can't be too dogmatic about it because Scripture doesn't give us its own interpretation here, but it seems to be reasonable, doesn't seem to be forced, it seems to flow pretty naturally, so I kind of think maybe that's what God wanted these people and wants us to keep in mind as we think about the ten gates of Jerusalem. Now, other observations here. So I said, I'm not going to read all of chapter 3, it would be too embarrassing Um, But there are things here, some basic observations to make. First of all, the first people mentioned working on this wall are the high priest and his fellow priest. Chapter 3, verse 1, the high priest arose with his brothers, the priest, and they built the sheep gate. So that tells us that probably the people that were least likely to be involved in physical labor would have been these men especially the high priest. He had gotten to a point in life where he didn't do physical labor. But he's not above it. Not this man. And so you have the, the very top echelon of, leader, of spiritual leadership that is involved in the hands-on work of rebuilding the wall. The high priest and the, and the other priest. And then the next one that are mentioned in verse 2, Next to him, the high priest, the men of Jericho built. Now that means these are not locals. So it wasn't just residents within Jerusalem that were rebuilding the walls of Jerusalem, but people were coming from around Israel. There was a lot of participation with this. And Jericho was considered the cursed city. And these people came and they they took up the labor just as the others had done. So there's many other uh, individuals that are mentioned, and, um, and we see here um, people of high reputation, people of no reputation. We see uh, all kinds of vocations involved. There are goldsmiths involved. There's a perfumer involved. Officials are mentioned numerous times, all kinds of officials from all over Israel. Um, a total of at least eight times officials are mentioned. Um, Priests. Temple servants, Levites are mentioned five times, goldsmiths, perfumers, as I said. And one guy gets, gets really honorable mention because we're told that he repaired the walls zealously. And so he, he, he was an eager beaver. And so he gets special recognition because he worked so zealously in what he did. That's Baruch in verse 20. So lots of different kinds of people leaders, Levites, priests, officials, craftsmen, businessmen, inhabitants of Jerusalem, and non-locals, men and women. One guy apparently didn't have any sons, and so it says his daughters worked alongside of him. There were wealthy people and there were servants. There was unity, but there was not unanimity. Interestingly enough, it says in one verse here, that, that there were a group of people who were not in agreement and not supportive of the rebuilding of the wall. So those that worked, worked with unity. But there was not unanimity. There was at least one person, group of people that were opposed to what was going on. And I would make another observation. You read through this whole list of people, over 40 different individuals, and not a single stonemason is mentioned. How did they get this job done? If you go to Israel today, one of the things that they'll do is take you below street level, near where the Western Wall is, the Wailing Wall, and you go way down. It must be a hundred feet down, and and you see these massive stones. I mean, they're, they weigh many, many, many tons. Like. Minimum, I think one or was 80 tons was a small one. These are huge, massive stones. There were no stonemasons. People that just lived ordinary lives. They were not skilled at what they were doing. And in 52 days' time, without a single stonemason present, the entire wall will be rebuilt. This is phenomenal. They worked hard, it was hard physical labor. They participated, but there were no experts. And there was no one who would have chosen this as his life occupation, because there were no stonemasons. So when they all looked around and decided, how do I want to spend my life? None of them said, using rock. Like I remember being in high school and taking several different kind of jobs in my summers, and, and you know, usually construction, But one of the things, when you work construction, um, you get to see a lot of trades. And I looked at all these different trades, because I'm thinking, you know, what do I want to do with my life? And I figured out real quick, there was one I never, ever, I'm not even going to be tempted by. And it's South Texas, Corpus Christi, where they had all these flat roofs with tar and aggregate. And they had those guys up there in the middle of the summer, 100 degrees, 100% humidity, and they are mopping tar, black tar, onto these roofs, And I'm going, Lord, I pray this never happens to me. I mean, I had nothing but respect for those guys, when I'm thinking, that's the last job on earth I'd ever want to have. Well, apparently, nobody in this group ever wanted to be a stonemason because there were no stonemasons in this group, none that are mentioned. They all, which means they all had to put aside their personal preference for what they would like to do, right? They all had to say, you know, this isn't my first choice for a job. This isn't my 10th choice for a job. I would never choose this for a job. But this is what God has called me to. And they answered the call. I find that impressive. There is no focus here on personal giftedness. There was no mention of spiritual gifts hardly ever in the Old Testament, not like we think of them. Giftedness is not in focus here. What is in focus is willingness, availability, faithfulness, diligence. Every person had a significant role. Every single person. Now, they do point out Several times, Nehemiah makes, makes reference to they built in front of their home. In fact, seven different times. Not everybody, because there were non-locals involved. Not everybody that even was local lived right next to the wall. But one of the things they did, if you lived near a wall, they said, you're going to build that section of the wall. Pretty smart, because they're going to be a lot more committed to that section of the wall being right. Right? <laughs> because that's their part of the wall. And they don't want somebody coming through the wall into their home but every person was significant. Every person viewed his job as being important. In our staff manual at His Hill, I didn't write this. Um, A previous director did. And he writes about the, um, this is under the section, the resources. And and the first resource at His Hill are the staff members. And, And in respect to the staff members being the number one resource for His Hill, This former director wrote, Staff members must reflect the conviction that God alone can glorify himself, and thus they will seek to live dependently. And then he goes on to say, Interpersonal relationships that demonstrate a servant attitude, team mentality, and submission to one another are expected in light of the teaching of Scripture. All interactions must be undergirded with love, respect, and value of each one God brings our way, whether fellow worker, student, or guest. Loyalty to one another, assuming the best, and guarding against any negative, destructive behavior or talk is to be an ever-increasing demonstration of the fruit of the Spirit of Jesus. Love it. And then he goes on, he says, The sure knowledge that many parts are needed to make a whole will express itself in mutual respect and assisting one another across lines of defined responsibilities. Thus, food service, teaching, maintenance, housekeeping, office, and administrative personnel will neither over nor underestimate their contribution in this ministry. I love that. we, We go through this every year before the students come in, and it just blesses my heart all the time because it's just so true. This is what we're seeing here in this third chapter of Nehemiah. Every single person is significant. Nobody is either underestimating or overestimating their value. The whole of life must have Christ and His Word in view. There are no unimportant people, jobs, or times. All are rich with possibilities of demonstrating His sufficiency, power, and wonderful love. The inner life as well as the outer life can and must be a worship service to the one whom Paul said, we live and move and have our being. What were these people doing when they were stacking one rock on top of the other? Worshiping God. There's no other reason why this went so smoothly, especially when we look at the upcoming chapters and see the enormous opposition that they were facing. God just was overriding all of that and accomplishing what he wanted to accomplish through people whose lives were yielded to him. Now, if you were going to, you know, maybe have to have a Bible knowledge test, somebody said to you, List to me the most significant doctrinal passages of Scripture. Maybe you'd say Romans 6, 7, and 8. Maybe you'd say the Sermon on the Mount. You could list lots of things, but I guarantee you nobody would say Nehemiah chapter 3. Where is the doctrinal significance of Nehemiah chapter 3? I've never heard any doctrine preached from Nehemiah chapter 3 but clearly it's important to God that God in his eternal word said, you know, let's just skip the doctrine for a minute and let's just talk about people. One person after another mentioned. And that convicts me. If I've had one downfall in my life of ministry, it has not been recognizing people enough. And God's saying recognizing people is important. Who knew when they started building this wall, my name's going to be listed for eternity in God's word. Maybe they would have had more volunteers if they had known that. (laughs) But nobody knew that, did they? Nobody knew when they started building this wall. Oh, by the way, you're going to have a brick named after you. (laughs) No. They built because they were simply responding to God's moving of their hearts, God's calling upon them. And God said, now let me recognize you. This has always been more than just about a wall. And God honors these people for eternity by listing their names. I think that's very significant. When I go to, every so often, we have an international staff conference, Torchbearers does, in England. And because it only happens usually every four years, there's always somebody that's retiring or somebody that died. And so they get honored. And I tell you what, man, those Brits, they know how to do honoring things, how to honor people, how to do those kind of services really well. I'm always impressed. I haven't learned well enough from them. But here's what I want to do. Never done this before, but I'm taking my my cue from God's Word where He says, sometimes you just need to stop talking about the doctrine and give recognition to people. So I want to give a little recognition here. And I want to start with the camp staff. At his hill. Now I'm not asking you to applaud or throw money at them or anything like that, <laughs> though they would take both. Um, <laughs> but I would like, as I just call the different groups of individuals, I'd like for them just to stand so the rest of you can just see who these people are and what they do in the summer at His Hill. So counselors. If you're a counselor at His Hill, any counselors in here? Thank you. So you can just stand. You can sit down. Every role is important. None is more valuable than another. As I've looked through this list, I'm going, oh, we could do without. No. Not a single, not a single one is is non essential. They all are essential. Kitchen staff. If you work in the kitchen at His Hill. I love our kitchen staff. (laughs) I'm telling you what, they are cooking food for 160 to 200 people three times a day. Those five girls that just stood up. It's amazing. Just amazing. Our little bitty kitchen, if you've seen our kitchen, you'd go, there's no way. And that, that many meals they're putting out, it's just incredible. Our housekeeping... If you work it for in housekeeping at his hill. A lot of turnover in that, <laughs> in that particular, but be, only because we do that by rotation. We use a lot of high school kids in housekeeping. They're with us on a two-week rotation, and then more will come in. We used to call it, they used to, they nicknamed years ago that role the bowling team because they're cleaning toilet bowls all day long. (laughs) And for many years, it was the first position that filled up every summer. We would have all the volunteers we needed for the bowling team quicker than anything else. And that was just amazing, just the Spirit of God. You know, these young women who want to come and clean toilets to the glory of God. And if you've seen our bathrooms, it's amazing. I mean, just they're spotless. I mean, the kids come in and destroy them. Literally destroy them, and then, in a few minutes later, miracle takes place, and you're just going, <laughs> "Wow!" Our maintenance team. If you're on maintenance, if you're one of the mo'boys at his hill involved with that, there's going to be fewer that can stand up. Thank you. Thank you. These guys work. All day long, they get called on to work at night. Things break. They have to come in and fix them. Water lines break. Sewage systems break, um, clog. They have to unplug toilets and unplug sewer lines. That's, you know, and then they're mowing all the time. Great having it rain. We're always praying for rain. You realize when you're praying for rain, it means these guys are mowing. And they're constantly mowing and weed eating. And we appreciate it. It has to be done. The wranglers... Girls and Mark that work down there, Mark and the girls, there you of here, wranglers? <laughs> it's hard, again, out there in the sun, but they have to be so on top of everything, and not only fun and, and loving the kids, but they have to be so on top of the big dangerous animals, and God's really kept us safe all through the years. Um, our office workers, Megan, Jade, Lizzie, all around, Just so much that goes on in the office, they're the ones that really run camp. And then the leadership administration, everybody's involved in leadership and administration, but there's, we have Connor and Kevin and Gabe and John and Michael, all you guys, they're, they're just doing so much to keep the place going as well, appreciate all of you. We have lots of people involved with music, Tobito with the snack bar. Where's Tobito? She's in here. There she is. She runs her... It's great having a German-run snack bar. I'm telling you what. (laughs) You will eat what she says to eat. You will buy what she says to buy. (laughs) We have our pool, and lots of people work with the pool. A lot of the counselors have been trained as lifeguards, but Shay, where's Shay? Shay runs the pool. Stand up, Shay. (laughs) Shay's been... Shay has lived at his hill, born there at his hill. I've known her all of her life, and she does a tremendous job. That pool is just sparkling clean, which is hard to do, considering all the urine and everything that goes in the pool. <laughs> and But the most difficult thing she has to put up with is there's always somebody throwing rocks in the pool, and it's just <laughs> terrible. That would be me. Um, I appreciate every one of you. It's just amazing how God's using you, and again... No single person is more important than another. Who among these people would I say we can do without them? Which one of these roles would I say it's dispensable? None of them. But the same is true here at our church. Not a big church, but it's amazing how many people are involved. And I know I'm going to miss some area or some person, but just even with, with finance. Small church, we've got three people that are constantly working with finance here. Brenda Ellsworth, Brenda Washington, Israel Turner, and they've been doing this for many, many years. I'm so grateful to each of them. They're competent. They're people of integrity. We never have to worry about anything, and they're just just behind the scenes taking care and making sure that all that bookkeeping and legal stuff is being taken care of. So thank you very much. We have wedding showers, baby showers, funerals that take place, and there's so many different ladies that are involved with that. A lot of it has fallen to Penny Turner um, over the years and, and just so grateful to Penny for doing all that. We have bulletins and so many other just miscellaneous things that, that you don't even think about. And because they don't get thought about, who's going to do them? Well, Gwen Turner has been the one who has stood and, and just kind of been in the gap. You always need somebody that will stand in the gap and just look and see the things that need to be done and take the initiative to do it. And Gwen has done that so faithfully all through the years and so appreciative all of us are. As elders, we've talked several times um, about that, these roles and just how significant they are and how valuable these people are. Taking care of our lawn, making sure it gets mowed. Larry Bowden does that. Cleaning the church, the stamnesses doing that. All of our deacons with looking after the widows, the building, practical needs in the church, vital things that they're concerned with making sure communion's put out once a month, my dad and Kachi taking care of that, our worship team up here, the choir that we now have, the security team, the sound and live stream and the techie guys and all that they do, our Sunday school teachers and nursery workers, the mission committee, and to say nothing really of the importance of all of those that are simply praying. Nothing's more important. And those that just, they're on our our prayer chain, and they get it, and they pray. And I know, I'm speaking for all the elders, we just see how much God does through the prayers of his people. How could that possibly be less important than me standing here preaching every Sunday? Every single person of value. And I don't know, you know, God's not adding, there's not going to be a 67th book of the Bible written. But I know, I know this. We're all going to stand before the Lord one day. We will be at the beam of seat of Christ. And we're going to get rewarded. It'll be, all of us are going to have some sense of regret, some sense of loss. Nobody's going to be rewarded as much as we have the potential for because nobody lives 100% of the time by faith and obedience to Christ. Nobody does. But I know this, every single one of us is going to be recognized by the King of Kings. And he's going to say, thank you. Good job. And, there's, and the honor that we will receive from him. What an amazing time that will be. And we'll go, me? <laughs> what did I do? And he says, you put a rock in the wall. I mean, if those guys are being honored for putting rocks in a wall, Lord Jesus will honor each of us as well as we simply say yes to him. As insignificant as it may appear, Jesus is saying it was anything but. It was an eternal work. That wall was not eternal. But what is done, not for Christ, but what is done from Christ is eternal. One of the plaques we have in our walls, you know, whatever, only one life we've been given, whatever is, you know, it'll all soon be passed, but what is done for Jesus, it will last. That is not true. It's a good sentiment, but you can do stuff for Jesus in your flesh, and it's not going to last. It's whatever is done from Christ, that is what will last. Whatever is done from Christ, cleaning a toilet, serving, preparing communion, bringing dishes to potluck, whatever is done from Christ, Christ. That will last. And the King of Kings one day is going to honor each of us for all that was done from Christ. Amen? I'll close this in prayer. God, I thank you for these passages of Scripture where you just put the doctrine aside, and as important as it is, vital as it is, and just focus on people, and their importance, and the value, God, that you place upon ordinary folks yielding their lives to you and allowing you to use them in very simple, common things, and that you transform the common, Lord, into spectacular, temporal, into eternal, as we live lives yielded and responsive to you. I thank you, God, for all the people that I've recognized this morning, and I know the recognition that you give will be infinitely greater than anything I've said. But I thank you for them. Thank you for how you're using them, for the great blessing they they are to so many lives. I pray you would encourage them, strengthen them, bless them, God, with peace and joy in knowing, Lord, that you are pleased and how they yield themselves to you and make themselves available to you. In Jesus' name, amen. told me not to
1: waste any time and get you guys in here. He's, he's got work to do. <laughs> Okay, well, I will open us in prayer, and, uh, and then we're going to be looking at the last part of 1 Thessalonians. Heavenly Father, uh, we thank you for this time uh, today to gather and uh, to look at your Word, and we are grateful that you're here with us. We're grateful that the Holy Spirit uh, guides us and uh, leads us and teaches us out of your word, Lord, opens it up to us. Uh, I thank you for the privilege of teaching this book, Lord, and we look forward to Jim's uh, teaching uh, and the excitement uh, of the uh, truth of your word when we find it. Uh, we just thank you for being our God in Jesus Christ. Amen. Yeah. So we have just uh, the last bit of First Thessalonians to, uh, to finish up. And uh, I don't have a whole lot. Uh, we were we stopped at uh, we'd gotten through verse 18, um, so we've got 19 into finishing here at uh, 28 today. And uh, as you recall, I, I said this last section was divided uh, kind of into three areas. Uh, it was with a relationship of our attitude or our testimony toward uh, spiritual leaders. Uh, and teachers, and then our attitude toward each other as believers, and the third section was our attitude or our testimony toward God, and that was, that's where we are at the moment. Um, we're still looking at that. So uh, verses uh, 19 and 22, uh, I'm going to pick it up at verse 16, and then we'll focus, uh, focus on 19 and 22. Verse 16, 1 Thessalonians 5, rejoice always. Pray without ceasing and everything give thanks for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Now picking up in 19. Do not quench the spirit. Do not despise prophetic utterances, but examine everything carefully. Hold fast to that which is good. Abstain from every form of evil. Okay. And so in these... Uh, verses 19 through 22, I think uh, the four verses really kind of uh, look back to this phrase that we see in 19, do not quench the Spirit. Has, have you all heard this phrase before? Have you ever heard this phrase, not to quench the Spirit? Do you know that this is the only place in Scripture where it's actually found with regard to the Spirit, not to quench the Spirit? So what does it mean? What do you think it means?
2: Right. Right.
1: Correct. Okay. Let's just focus on the word quench. What is? What do you think of when you think of quench? Fire extinguisher. Fire extinguisher. You can. You know, I I looked a a word up in the Concordance. It's about, there's 20 places in the Scripture, and most of it has to do, some of it is with quenching the wrath of God, uh, and some has to do with, like, issues of thirst. Like in hell, you can't quench that thirst. And so it's like, you know, putting water on something or putting a fire out. Uh, I've got some Scriptures that uh, denote the Holy Spirit have we have you uh, seen uh, where the where scriptures will depict the Holy Spirit as fire can you think of some scriptures I found four and I'm just uh, I'm going to read three of them because one's repetitive um, I have from Matthew 3:11 uh, this is depicting the Holy Spirit as fire that could then thereby be quenched this is John the Baptist speaking. He says, uh, Matthew 3.11, As for me, I baptize you with water for repentance. But he who is coming after me is mightier than I, and I am not fit to remove his sandals. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. And then uh, <clears throat> Acts chapter 2, uh, verse. I'm going to use this scripture twice for another point. Uh, uh, So I've included the first four verses of Acts 2, 1 through 4. It says, When the day of Pentecost had come, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a noise like a violent rushing wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. And there appeared to them tongues as of fire distributing themselves, and they rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, and began to speak with utter to- other tongues as the spirit was giving them utterance. And then there's a, a good one uh, also in Isaiah, uh, chapter four, verses two through four. And this is referring to, in the day of the Lord, as it's proceeded into the millennial kingdom with regard to Israel, it says, "In that day, the branch of the Lord that's Jesus, will be beautiful and glorious, and the fruit of the earth will be the pride and the adornment." Of the survivors of Israel, it will come about that he who is left in Zion and remains in Jerusalem will be called holy, everyone who is recorded for life in Jerusalem. When the Lord has washed away the filth of the daughters of Zion and purged the bloodshed of Jerusalem from her midst by the spirit of judgment and the spirit of burning. So you could see uh, possibly fire uh, as uh, related to the Holy Spirit there. Um, as Tom was saying, I think it's, uh, you know he, uh, there's a difference in the work of the Holy Spirit with relationship uh, to how he's, he's dealt uh, with, his, with God's people in the past, and then specifically that work as it relates to the church. It's different, right? Uh, a little review, I think, would help uh, regarding the Holy Spirit and, and its work uh, toward the church. With the church, when Christ, so when He ascended to heaven, uh, that's when He sent the Holy Spirit, and He told the disciples in, in uh, John sixteen seven that that's what we, <clears throat> that's what He would do. He said, uh, John sixteen seven. But I tell you the truth, <coughs> excuse me. It is to your advantage that I go away, for if I do not go away, the Helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send Him to you. And he did. And then on the day of Pentecost, that, that verse, uh, the, the verses in Acts 2 that I read uh, spoke of uh, where every believer in Christ beco- became indwelt by the Spirit on the day of Pentecost. And uh, so that work began that day, that, that, in, that work in the individual by the Holy Spirit. And ever since, uh, when a person trusts in Christ as their personal Savior, the Holy Spirit... Comes into the, their mortal body, our mortal bodies, and it makes uh, makes it a holy temple or a holy sanctuary, and we find that in 1 Corinthians six nineteen, it says, <clears throat> Paul writes, "Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, who is in you, whom you have from God, and that you are not your own?" So we have that. So this is a different work that didn't occur. Uh, in times prior to, the, to Pentecost, in times prior to the establishment of the church. The Holy Spirit is in us, and He ministers to us from that, from that vantage. I, uh, I came up with a few things. Can you think of some things that the Holy Spirit does for the individual uh, believer who is part of the church? He enlightens the Word. I I put He unfolds the Scriptures to us, so He does. We're told that He will lead us, you know. We can get rid of all of our commentaries, and still we should be able to get the message that God wants us to receive, Uh, and that's via the Holy Spirit. Also, uh, He teaches us just in general ways in our Christian walk, in our life. He teaches from that vantage, Uh, guides us, directs us, I put also he rebukes us. I think we know as believers the moment that we step out of the will of God or when we do something that's totally in our flesh. I know I do. And I'm usually stopped cold. Kevin? This
2: seems to be very closely related to Mark 9, 38 through 49. Would you read it? Yeah. uh, John said to him, teacher, we saw someone driving out demons in your name and we tried to stop him because he wasn't following us. Don't stop. For whoever is not against us is for us, and whoever gives you a cup of water to drink in my name, because you belong to Christ, truly I tell you, you will never lose this reward. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to fall away, it would be better for him if a heavy millstone were to be hung around his neck, and he would be thrown into the sea. And if your hand causes you to fall away, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life maimed than to have two hands that go to hell, the unquenchable fire." And if your foot causes you to fall away, cut it off, for it is better for you to enter life lame than have two feet and be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to fall away, badge it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than have two eyes and be thrown into hell, where their worm does not die and where the fire is not quenched. Correct. For everyone who will be salted with fire, salt is good, but if the salt should lose its flavor, how can you season it? Have salt among yourselves and be at peace with one another. And this is all talking about, it starts with this. Um, them trying to stop someone who's prophesying, which is kind of the same theme here, mm-hmm. um, where it talks about don't stop the Spirit, don't despise prophecy, right? Right. And so it seems very related, and uh, I think it was confusing to the disciples at the time, but I think it's
1: very related. I think, yeah, that's referring to the judgment of hell as unquenchable. And there's a there's a there's four or five references to that but specifically to the work of the Holy Spirit is what we're looking at here and that is that is good and it is it is uh, correlates because we' are fixing a look at the the, the relationship to prophesying because these four verses all I believe relate back to quenching what are things that demonstrate that you're not quenching it and that's what we're going to look at as we go beyond there uh, you know it's it's the Holy Spirit has this fantastic ministry for believers, and uh, and it's much more than what I just read as far as the things that He does for us daily. But, you know, under the providence of God, He has made us capable. We're capable of quenching that ministry. We can quench that Holy Spirit, and that's, uh, that's not a good thing to do, and we do that by resisting. I think that you can tell if someone has quenched. There's believers, uh, many believers that we can look at and we go, you say you are, but I really, you know, there's no fruit that I can see. Your life does not show that. And there's just there's a lack of a, uh, just that, that real presence of God, I think, in, in us when we quench the Holy Spirit. We can quench it. And I think we can do that not just individually. I think entire churches can quench the Holy Spirit. What does that mean? Uh, I think it's the simplest way I can say it's just saying, saying no to God, saying no to God, and we can do that, and we know better, and we're being prodded constantly in our spirit. We, you know, we're all educated in the Word in here. We know when we're out uh, out of, out of uh, context of it and when we're, when we're out of the will of the Lord. We know when, we're, when things are not as God would have us to do. Karen. I agree. That's well said. And there's also a fragrance, so there's an aroma about us when we're in the will of God too, that I think God can He detects that and picks up on that. And we can we can just totally block that out by quenching.
2: And I think that, I guess where I was going with this is I see the quenching as, as what we do or how we relate to others. Right? Okay. Because the beginning part of this is um comfort discouraged, help the weak and patient with everyone. See that no one were pazy that's kind of where Mark was going with no. but whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me, which was related to them questioning this person who wasn't part of their
1: group. The second, the yeah. Group, right? Yes. I think you said, you summed that up well, because the last verse, that, I think the 23 sums up what everything is not to quench the spirit. It is to abstain, abstain from every form of evil. And that, not, you know, there's, there's sins of commission and sins of omission. And when we, you know, you can abstain from things that are evil, but you can also abstain from things that are good. And that is quenching the Spirit. But, you know, this is not so easy to do. Um, they, he was telling them to be yielded to the Spirit. To not quench the Spirit was to be yielded, not to say no, say Yes and he told them not to and with it he said not to despise prophetic utterances that sounds a little foreign i think to us sometimes what how would that pertain to the thessalonians and why was that important that they not despise prophetic utterances what is a prophet, what is a prophetic utterance what is prophecy speaking of truth it's god's truth that's right It's a revelation from God to men. Do we still have prophecy today? I maybe shouldn't ask that. We still have truth. We still have revelation from God, okay? I can have a revelation from God that speaks into your situation, for instance, Brian, or something like that. And I would tell you, hey, you know, I'm feeling this on my heart. I'm not saying go write this down in scripture. I'm saying I feel like this is from God and he's using me to, to uh, uh, relay this to you or be his conduit for it. And that, I think, is a relevant, uh, the relevance for today. At their point, remember, that I tell you, this was either the first or the second letter that Paul wrote. Prophetic utter- utterances were a, sin- were, a- were a revelation from God, were Scripture that were coming. These guys were going to have letters circulated to them at some point, and they're told to examine them carefully. Uh to receive them, but to examine them carefully. Hold fast to the truth, and to and the standard is always God's word. Okay, we're told to test things, right? Well, we've got the entire book to test things. They didn't necessarily have; they had the Old Testament and whatever letters were beginning to circulate as scripture uh, to test things. But we're still held; uh, they were still held to that standard, and we're held to that standard. We should not be taken in easily by by exciting and spiritual things that you know yes jeff so
2: i think you know what you're getting at is when you have got a situation in your life and the lord is
1: i think the way he works in this day age because his his revelation is complete and in- right my situation right yeah but, but it's you know here's how my word applies yeah. in, in will we'll that's what the holy you know,
2: that's why he's there Jonathan
1: Out of there. Mm -hmm. And that's quenching the spirit and rejecting prophecy. And and I think that it's
3: possible that, um, now, and if he's not writing necessarily to those people, he's writing to the people that would have accepted
2: the words when he was there, but it could have something to do with that.
1: I I agree. And sometimes it's just somebody taking a passage, from me, for instance, that I've glossed over, and then they take it and they go, uh uh. Read this because this is applying to you, and it's just because I don't want to hear it that way. It's it's branding me essentially, and I think Charlie did that not too long ago when he when he talked about, you know, some some real situations, and he used Ezra, uh, to to do it, and you know, and I've gone back and I can't disagree with it, and I've listened to it, and you know, it's tough stuff, but you know, the squir- the spirit was not quenched in any of that. Um, Okay, let's keep going. Uh, verse 23 and 24. Uh, now may the God of peace himself sanctify you entirely and may your spirit and soul and body be preserved complete without blame at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Faithful is he who calls you and he also will bring it to pass. And I think that uh, Paul was looking... Uh, to a future time when all believers are going to be perfect. Remember uh, that word for coming. I said parousia. We looked at before that. It that means, and in, in the presence, and so in the presence of Jesus Christ, at some point in the future, we are all going to be perfect. It is God who has set us apart, who sanctifies us, um, and that means everything about us. You know this. The, we shouldn't focus on the words. Too much, but it just means the whole person the the Numa, the psyche and the soma, the body and the uh, spirit and the uh, and the uh, soul and that we belong to him. He has rights over us and uh, but he is faithful and he is going to accomplish it. He's going to make us perfect bl- unblameable and fit for heaven at some point because he is he has the power to do it. Any other comments on that? We don't. What? So we don't have that power. Right, and we don't. we don't. And just think just when I think my I've got my walk going good, that's just when I don't, because I have nothing to do with it but to get out of the way, and that's hard. Brenda, did you have something back there? Okay. Um, okay. And then the last is just Paul's closing. Uh, verses 25 through 28. Brethren, pray for us. Greet all the brethren with a holy kiss. I adjure you by the Lord to have this letter read to all the brethren. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. It's pretty straightforward. Pray for us. Who doesn't need prayer? Uh, do we greet each other with a holy kiss? Some do. <laughs> That was a that was a tradition or expression, uh, it began with Jewish the Jewish faith. They would kiss each other with a holy kiss, and it was carried over uh, into the Christian. And the uniqueness of it was that it was uh, pretty much restricted to uh, one of your own gender. Uh, was how that was t- uh, played out. The fact that uh, Paul it says he adjure, adjures you. That's a funny word. Uh, solemnly urges the Thessalonians, and he did this by the, by the Lord to have this letter read to all believers. Does that tell us anything? He knew, he knew it was Scripture. Yeah, he knew it was Scripture. And it was to be passed around as God's Word. What a, what a blessing that would be to have penned something and go, wow, that was the Word of God. Very few people can uh, uh, know what that feels like, but Paul did. And then he gives his final benediction, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you, which is itself a summation of all spiritual blessings. Um, Anybody want to add anything? Okay. Well, I'm anxious to get Jim up here, so let me close uh, this study just with a prayer, and uh, then we'll begin to have Jim teach us. Lord, I just want to uh, thank you for this uh, Thessalonian letter, and uh, I thank you for for the success that Paul and, and Silas and Timothy had, and I thank you that the Thessalonians received the gospel, Lord, and that they did it in the power of the Holy Spirit. I thank you that they were enduring, and they had persecutions, and yet they endured. I thank you for all the doctrine that Paul saw fit to teach these people, and I thank you especially... Uh, that you show us the practical application uh, of that teaching, Lord, and what it is to have a future in Christ. I pray that you would uh, bless Jim's teaching as he proceeds today, and uh, just thank you for this time. In Jesus' name, amen.
3: Okay, everybody, got me? Okay. All right. Well, let me just open us in prayer. Father, we just uh, once again come before your word, um, anxious to learn of you, and and uh, we just really can see you in creation, Father. And so we we appreciate that witness and. Um, We just want to go deeper than that, though, and know you um, as a person more and more uh, through the Lord Jesus, and uh, so uh, we uh, await upon you all the day, Father, in Jesus' name. Okay. Well, this is, you didn't know this, but this is going to be a grand experiment because uh, this is the first time I've taken all these Notes on various aspects of creation and Christ's upholding and His uh, involvement in Genesis 1 and and put them all in one place. So, this will be, these are working notes, okay? So, uh, we'll um, just kind of go through this together as fellow sojourners. So, what I would like to do, and maybe six weeks or so, um, look at the creation throughout the Scripture because there are references not just in Genesis 1 and 2. um, And it's funny, uh, when I first started really looking into this in depth in the mid to late 80s, I, I shied away from Genesis 1 and 2. That's too hard. There's just so much stuff in there that you will just never understand it. So, I would use all these other references in the New Testament Hebrews and Romans and places like that or in the Psalms, Psalm 104, and and that's where it would stop. But a few years ago, I said, no. I mean, the the record of creation is in Genesis 1 and 2. So, that's what I've sort of compiled here. We'll do that early on just um, to see sort of an outline um, so I'll I'll start a little bit of a, an overview um, uh, today what 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 time is it there? Oh great, Jack, thanks. <laughs> uh, so and and I left my uh, cell phone at home, so I may go way over, Charlie. Sorry. So just we'll 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 barely start the overview a little bit today and uh but just as a sort of a rough outline um Next week, we'll continue that just to kind of set the stage, and then we're going to start going through Genesis 1 verse by verse. Now, I'm going to leave the biology stuff to Jack for the most part. I I like the cosmology stuff, so we'll start there. And there's a little bit on, of course, man, the creation of man, that's important as the pinnacle, really, of creation. But uh, I'm going to really concentrate on some of the astrophysical things initially, and then if we get into the other, that's great. Um, and, and I guess what really drove me to want to do this again is, um, what what if you meet a Christian, say from some other church, probably, and he says to you, "Well, the Big Bang is in Genesis one, right?" What are you gonna say? What are the differences? How how, what, how different is Genesis one in its orderly sequence? Compared to some random explosion-like expansion event, and that it's a really a worse fairy tale than any of the Babylonians or anybody else ever came up with. That then galaxies formed mysteriously, and as as this expanse cooled. I mean, it's unbelievable. Uh, I can do this now because I finished my PhD uh, in December. So heck with them, you know. I can I can uh, talk what, about what I want to talk about. So. So next week, we'll pick up again with some more of the, and I have a little bit more of an intro to to do today, but um, so we'll pick up some of the overview again, and then we'll just go into the the account, the record, verse by verse. It's powerful when you do it verse by verse. Um, So we'll go through the creation account, probably most of it, or at least as much as we can do next week, and then the week after that, we'll do some comparisons with secular science. Where does secular science not measure up? Well, for one, they can barely eke out a description, let alone cause what, I mean, even the Big Bang. There was this infinite energy density at the beginning. Really? Where'd that come from? And of course, it, all we, and, and there's this famous astrophysicist and cosmologist, James Peebles, who I heard about a year ago. He, he was asked a question and he said, all we can say about the beginning is it just started expanding. Boy, that's really a comfort. So, and a good guy. I mean, he, he's honest. Um, so we'll do that the, the next week, comparison with some of the secular science, how it doesn't me- measure up. And again, we'll hit back to some of the, the creation of the cosmos that we see in, in uh, Genesis 1. And then week three, we'll talk about uh, the fall of man and the universe and how those are interconnected. Uh, and the fall is a very important event, the, the beginning of entropy, really, and, and, and the second law of thermodynamics where things start running down. Wasn't like that in the garden. Um, so we'll look at the fall of man and and uh, the fall of the universe that happened at the same time. And then after that, we'll go back, the fourth week or so, we'll go back and, and revisit some of the, the cosmic creation things that we, we may need to do some comparison like in some of the counterfeits. You know, in in, uh, Genesis 1-4, where he made the expanse in somewhat less than a day. So it was pretty fast. Uh, When you compare that with 13.8 billion years of, you know, cosmology. You know, Henry Morris used to joke about it. He said, when I first started studying this, the universe was about 5 billion years old, and now it's about 10 billion years old. That shows how old I am. So... I, I, I feel like that someday, so it's just on and on and on, uh, so we'll, we'll do some comparisons back with Genesis 1 and how inflation, which it's, it's funny how these things are kind of folded into the Big Bang or the standard model of cosmology, they're folded in because they look at an observation and say, well, we have to add something to this, and so that's what this inflation model is, because everything that we see is at very equilibrium, well, how could that happen? Well, the universe must have expanded just really, really fast. Yeah, in Genesis 1-4 to 7 or whatever. So um, it's interesting how they, it, these are counterfeits that, that try to approach to what we know from Scripture, which is kind of fascinating to see that uh, comparison. The fifth week or so, uh, and the way things are going, that might be the 10th week, but we'll shoot for the fifth week. We'll talk about the end of the universe because secular cosmology talks about the end of the universe. You know, and there are a couple different options. You know, big crunch, you know, just expands forever, and, and then or there's a very very rapid expanse. And there's there's various theories. Uh, one is uh, heat death. They'll just keep expanding until s- the, so the temperature just goes down to basically zero. So that's heat death. You know, the, everything expands, and the, so the temperature goes down. And so we'll l- we'll look at those and see uh, some comparisons with that. And then the last week, sixth week or so, we'll talk about. Um, Christ's preeminent role in creation and upholding the universe, which is is really probably the most important part. And so we'll save that for the end. I've talked about this a little bit before, but try to make that a little bit more um, coherent. Um, So let me just, in the time we have, let me read a a couple of, well, I'll save the verses for next week. uh, I have some John MacArthur quotes, which uh, are really good. You know, a few years ago, he did this study on uh, creation, I think he called it creation, believe it or not, and um, it was about that time that we dropped our son, Matt, off at the master's college, and he was, you could tell he was really spooled up about this creation study, and he was almost, not angry, but he was, because out of 110 or so Christian colleges at the time, only six were holding to the Genesis 1 record of creation, six. You probably name them, Masters being one of those. So he was really spooled up. So that was his sermon series that he went through at about that time. This was in, you know, late 90s, uh, uh, about that time frame. Um, and then it became a book, which is this, The Battle for the Beginning, which is really a good book. He brings in a lot of really cool stuff about information. You know, you have to have the information, which is especially key in biology, you don't just go from an amoeba to a salamander. You have to have the information in terms of DNA. Where does that come from? And then because mutation is a real reach to do what evolution advertises. It just just can't occur. So question? No, and there's just, he goes into some of that detail, but, but it's about the information, which I've talked about before too. So um, this little booklet is sort of a, a synopsis of what's in this book. He doesn't go into some of the other detail, but this is just a really good little booklet on, on, about creation. Let me just read you some of these quotes from uh, John MacArthur. The Bible is not theory. In fact, it does not merely describe reality, it defines it. God's Word always delivers truth regardless of the subject it addresses. So when the Bible addresses origins in Genesis 1 and 2, it speaks the truth. Anyone with basic comprehension skills can read the first two chapters of Genesis and receive a clear and complete explanation of creation. It happened exactly how God says it happened. Just a couple of more here. Um, in Genesis 1-1, he said, God created the heavens and the earth. Well, God's opening statement isn't unclear. It isn't foggy, oblique, or obscure. It is a crystal clear declaration that establishes how we got here, who our creator is, and that he has an inherent authority over us. And for many people, that's where the problem lies. Uh, You can't move beyond the verse verse of the Bible without confronting your true attitude about the Scripture. What you make of Genesis 1-1 effectively declares your willingness to submit to God's Word. Uh, Another thing he says is, don't we have to apply science to the Genesis account, account, as if to really understand it somehow? Does science illuminate how we got here? The simple answer is no. The phase creation science is an oxymoron. There really is no such thing. Science is the study of natural laws, while God's work of creation is supernatural. All science is based on observation, verification, and repetition, which are really finite and, and small. God's work in creation has had, had no outside observers or verifiers, and it has never been repeated, It cannot be examined by any skills or methods available to scientists. It is fundamentally dishonest to embrace evolution and Big Bang cosmology as the empirical and intellectual high ground in the origins debate. The belief that nobody times nothing equals everything (coughs) is not only incompatible with scripture, it is incompatible with true science. People don't believe in evolution because it presents a compelling argument. They back into it morally because they want God out of the equation. Creation cannot be understood any other way than by believing the revelation of the Creator. God is the only one who knows what happened, and he is his own trustworthy witness. Creation was not a scientific event. Natural law played no part. Science can't tell us anything about the miraculous events that happened in those six days. And finally, um, this world and this life are temporal, Everything here will last for just a fleeting moment within the context of God's eternal purposes. His word tells us that God made all of us to reveal his character and glory and to redeem his people through the gospel of his son. And that's really the bottom line. If you trust his word for redemption, you can trust his word for creation. So, good words from John Mack. So, any questions before we continue this launch uh, next next week? I didn't even assign homework yet. I, I should probably do that. Do you remind me about that? Yeah, sure, that's going to happen. Okay, so, and, and also, let me thank Jeff, too. Uh, you know, I've kind of thought about this. I was a little busy until December, but, you know, after that, I was thinking about how could I do this, and I wanted to teach a series on sanctification, but I don't know anything about it (laughs) um, other than stumbling through years and years of uh, in the dark. Um, And really, sanctification, we just heard from Jack, is really God's, he does it. We just have to be available. So that's my whole sanctification study. It's, It's up to you for the rest of it. So Jeff said, you know, you don't have to do just do what you've been studying, and so I thought more about that, and he said, just do it, and uh, so thanks to Jeff for a little uh, cattle prod there, which, which uh, got me started in this a few weeks ago, so we'll uh, see how it goes. Bottom line, I hope it's really fun. I hope it's engaging, and, and we really learn to know more about him as a result. Okay, let's pray. <coughs> Father, we just thank you so much for your word that you've, uh, it, I mean, it, it is written, is so powerful um, and that we can go to that and uh, trust you and that maybe th- through this study we can get to know more about you um, and how your creation is supernatural. And uh, so we just uh, trust in you for that and um, we just thank you for this time and for Jack's in-depth study of 1 Thessalonians. We just appreciate his hard work and uh, also for the service to follow and and hearing from Charlie. And uh, we just pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.